You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2019. Today's episode is titled, The Principle of Equal Yoking. Wise senior leaders will seek to build organizations using the principles of equal yoking and C4. These principles will enable an organization to build an excellent workforce and organize effective teams that deliver world-class value to its customers and clients. Organizations that function at this level will enjoy internal harmony and an outstanding reputation, plus enduring success and profitability. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Equal Yoking. Well, this morning we want to talk about the topic of equal yoking. This is part of the seminar, Building Building Equally Yoked Leadership Teams. This is uh, section two of the seminar, session two of the seminar, focused on really what it looks like to build an equally yoked leadership team. So the starting point for the discussion uh, is really 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through 18. It's kind of the seminal text on this. There are certainly Old Testament texts that talk about this as well. But uh, there's nothing as clear, I think, as this text right here about Paul's idea of equal yoking. And it's a pretty startling view. It raises a lot of questions with people when they start considering it. Uh, For example, it raises the question, well, do you only hire Christians? Uh, That's a very popular question. I think it's a question that really is not very relevant because if you're really objective about uh, how you evaluate whether or not someone's a Christian, uh, then what they say is not very meaningful. What's really meaningful about someone's profession of faith is what what they do. So uh, Paul is really into what people do, and you're going to see as he walks through this, you know, that's, that's really the essence here of determining whether or not you're equally yoked is you look at, at how you live with people. So I'm going to read this text to you and uh, give you a little bit of explanation as I go along. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. Paul writes, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That is, with people that do not know the Lord. Now, this, uh, the tense here is present tense, so this is an ongoing action. Present tense in Greek always in, include, means ongoing current action. And then the mood here is the imperative mood, which means this is a command. Uh, the Greek language can issue commands in, by, by you know, just put, forming the grammar a certain way. In English, we have to do commands by inflection of our voice, but in Greek, they could do that in the grammar. So this is a command to give and do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And he goes on to kind of unpack what he means by that. By, and he does that by a series of questions. He says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Now, this is a rhetorical question, which means there's an implied answer. And the implied answer is nothing. Righteousness and wickedness have nothing in common. They are diametrically opposed to each other. Righteousness is about God and his standards Wickedness is about the standards of man which are in rebellion against God. He goes on with the next question. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Fellowship is about communion. It's about walking together with people. And then again, it's a rhetorical question. You have light and you have darkness. Well, what fellowship is there between light and darkness? Well, the implied answer is there's none. Darkness is the absence of light. That's what it is. When you have light, it eradicates darkness. When you turn off the light, you have darkness. So 
it's very clear they know that they understand that he's using it an illustration from natural reality that they're very familiar with and so they he's immediately see okay there's there's not any any overlap there's not any compromise there's no connection here well he goes on with another question you can tell he's really intent on getting his point across because he's going to pound him with with these rhetorical questions he says what harmony is there between Christ and Baal well Jesus is Lord the true Lord of the universe the creator of the universe the sustainer of the universe the ultimate goal of the universe and Baal is an idol and the idol is nothing because there are no other gods there is only one God so the rhetorical question you know to these people who would have been well versed in this reality is there's there is absolutely no harmony and their word harmony there is the word that we get a symphony from we get the term symphony from a symphony is beautiful when everything harmonizes when everything is on key and on pitch it's in harmony it's beautiful to the ear which is the way God designed it to be and he's saying when you when you try to bring Christ with idolatry you have no harmony there's nothing it's total dissonance it's it's offensive to God he goes on with the next question what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever obviously he's talking about a believer in Christ and an unbeliever in Christ that would be the sense of this and again it's a rhetorical question a believer and unbeliever are diametrically opposed they're totally different what a true believer is trying to live based on Christ as Lord and an unbeliever is living living based on some other idol is Lord of his life so there's no commonality there's nothing there that would bring them together next question he just goes on with these questions what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols well the temple of God is the place of God and of course he's using the Old Testament imagery of the temple because that's what they they knew that's what was familiar to them and these these Christians in Corinth we don't know a lot about them how many were Jews and how many were Gentiles but it appears they were very knowledgeable in the Old Testament scripture so Paul felt very free in using Old Testament imagery in referring to the Old Testament to teach them and to admonish them so here this in this admonition he said what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols the implied answer is absolutely none the temple of God is the place where God alone resided there were no idols in the temple because idols are not gods idols are man-made inventions that are unreality for we are the temple of the living God now he gives them now in light of Christ we have a new understanding of the temple and that is we the body of Christ the individual members of the body of Christ compose the temple of God the temple of God is now not a physical structure but a spiritual structure as God has said I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people now that is a quote from the Old Testament and that's what God told Israel when he gave them the Old Testament covenant uh, that conditional covenant it said he said if you will obey me I will be your God and you will be my people so that's the sense of this he's Paul is appealing to something they would have been very familiar with so as God has said I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people now Israel failed to realize that because the law 
was a requirement that they could not obey. Because of the, their own depravity, they were not obey, able to obey the law. So though the law would have been a way to achieve this, they could not because of total depravity. So that's what the point he's making here. Is he, wa he wants to illustrate to them that God has an intent and a purpose, has a plan, always, always working that plan. And you have to know that he is calling out his people. And now through Christ, he has empowered the people to overcome depravity, to truly be the people of God that Israel could never be because Israel was trying to do it in the flesh. Therefore, come out from them and be separate. Now he changes to the aorist tense. He's still issuing an imperative here. The aorist tense in the Greek language is time indefinite, in meaning there's no specific time that is implied. Now it's commonly used for past tense events, but that is not really a past tense. It is really time indefinite. So it's an imperative saying, do this, come out from them. And then he says again in the aorist imperative, be separate, says the Lord. So the, there's the, the admonition here, the imperative is very strong. Do not connect yourself with these unbelievers, people who are not trying to live under the Lordship of Christ. And he goes on to say, touch no unclean thing. Again, an Old Testament metaphor here. And this is present imperative, meaning you don't continually do the practices of these pagans. Don't live like they live. Don't do, live according to their ways. You have to be separate from them. And he says, if you will do that, now he changes to future tense. I will receive you, referring to the ultimate glorification that we will enjoy when we go to be with the Lord. And he continues with the future tense and says, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord. In other words, the ultimate reality of the identification of the people of God is coming. It will be clear who the people of God are, and they will truly enjoy the benefits of being in the family of God fully. You have some of those benefits even now, but you will have them in their fullness in the days to come. So this is the basis on which he's issuing this mandate. He's appealing to timeless universal principles of God's universe to the way God designed it to be, saying, do not yoke yourself up with unbelievers. Now, it's important to note a couple of things about this context. Number one is that there's no reference here at all to marriage, nor is there any reference to the workplace or to public policy. Paul is defending himself in this text against attacks from apparently false apostles who've come to Corinth and are trying to discredit Paul in some way. So if you read back in the opening verses of this particular chapter, you'll see how he's appealing to what he did and how he functioned, and he functioned very well with great sacrifice to serve the Corinthians. So these, he's basically defending himself. This is a, an apologetic where he's defending himself and his work and saying, you know, you need to not get distracted and sucked into the ways of the world to these false apostles who are leading you astray. Stay true to what I have taught you. Do not be yoked with these people. That is unhealthy. It's not natural. It's inappropriate. Don't do that. So that's the maxim he gives us to it. Equal yoking is a maxim 
which means it's something that's generally true. Now, as we take that maxim and try to bring that into the various jurisdictions, I want to focus on the, the workplace primarily. We could take them to each of the jurisdictions and talk about how it applies, but I'm just going to focus on the workplace because the topic of this teaching is building equally yoked leadership teams. So the, one of the key principles here is the C4 principle, which I think all of you are probably familiar with. And C4 stands for calling character, capability, and commissioning. And this is really all about, you know, God's principle for how you qualify someone for any work assignment. It's the, it's the divine hiring criteria. Most of us, when we think about hiring somebody, we, we start writing down a, a, a skills description and kind of a job description of what we're looking for, and we just basically approach it using worldly ways. Well, this is the biblical principle here, the biblical standards, which go way beyond the world's ways and are much more comprehensive, much more thorough, and much more complete uh, in terms of how to do this. So calling is about the cry of the heart. Character is about being, having godly character. You will never have great workers if you don't have godly character. Capability is about the skill and ability God has given you and whether or not you've developed it. And commissioning is about seeing the call of God on people and then doing that call. So that's the principle here that helps you. If you build a team of C4 people, each person has C4 to do what they're doing, you are building an equally yoked team. And it starts out with the senior leaders. Every senior leader should have C4. And furthermore, that should filter down into the whole organization everyone in the organization, the question should be, do you have C4 to do the work you've been assigned to do? And you'll find that when that happens, the yoke is easy and the burden's light. You'll find incredible favor. You'll find that these people really, really excel and they do amazing things. You'll find that the management of those people will be easy. And just about every manager has had some experience with C4 people. They may not have recognized that it was C4, but they've had experience with people that were really easy to manage, that did excellent work, that were self-governed under God, that they could, they were go-to people, they were people they could trust and count on. They were really the best ones ever. They didn't fully understand why, but they, they recognized, wow, this is really good. When you have a C4 person, stand back and be in awe, because that's what's going to happen. When you have non-C4 people, you have conflict. You have problems. You have difficulties that you don't have to have. Now, the, we're always going to have problems to solve. That's not mean. Doesn't mean that there will be no end of that. You'll be an end of problems. The difference between a C4 people and a non-C4 person is the C4 person is a problem solver. They know how to solve problems. They work through problems. They 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 get things done. They're the ones you can count on. And when you have a bunch of C4 people, the management load is almost nil. It's basically the managers are just being sure the C4 people have what they need, just being sure that they're protected, and then let them do their thing. When you have non-C4 people, it is always an angst to manage them and try to motivate them and try to be sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and, and evaluate them. You're questioning, you know, am I getting my money's worth here? Are they really doing what they ought to be doing? Do they have the right attitude? All those things become big problems. C4 people... You never question any of that. You are so blessed, and they are such a blessing to the organization. Now, if Christians 
really learned how to function in their C4, uh, that we could build some amazing organizations. And keep in mind, the purpose of organizations is not to make money. It's to obey the creation mandate. You have to connect your organization, whatever you're doing, to the creation mandate. If you don't connect it to the creation mandate, you are, you're missing. You're missing what God intends for that organization to do. It's never primarily about the money. Now, will money, you know, will profit happen? Yes, because God does bless organizations that line up with him. But money is the byproduct, the fruit. It's not the goal. The goal is alignment and obedience to the will of God, finding your role in the meta narrative as part of our mandate to rule God's creation. So you have to connect it back to the creation mandate and then you see four people to help you fulfill the role that God has called you to fulfill. So that's how you begin to use this and see it. Now what I want to do in the time I have left here is just give you a quick picture of this. And so you can see, I'm going to have to skip over some slides here, but you can see some of how this works. This is a text out of Acts 6. Some of you are familiar with this text. Others, you know, may not be. Um, but this is a wonderful picture of what C4 does. When you begin to employ C4 people to, to solve a problem, amazing things begin to happen. So let me just walk you through this text. This is Acts 6, verses 1 through 7. And it reads, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews. Now the Hellenists were Jewish people who had been exiled outside of Israel in Gentile nations. So Hellenists were Greeks. So he's specifically talking about Jews who lived in the Greek areas who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost, who had heard the gospel preached that first day and became part of the church. Well, they're still part of this church. So this Acts 6 text, the context is the first church, the first local church there in Jerusalem that it's, it's early on in the existence of the church. So they, they chose to have a very communal kind of lifestyle and they were sharing things together. But the food distribution was not being handled correctly. So there was a problem. The widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, I've, I've got in your notes there the word diakonia. That's the Greek word diakonia that's used there to talk to daily distribution. Now, we translate the word diakonia ministry in English. That's the, that's the word that uh, is behind the word ministry is diakonia. Now, you'll notice it says daily distribution. Now, we don't know exactly what he's talking about until we read verse 2. Because verse 2 makes it very clear. And the 12, referring to the 12 apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is, it is not right that, uh, that we should be, give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So now verse 2 tells us that what he meant by diakonia in verse 1 was serving tables, food distribution. In fact, the word table there literally means a table that you would have food on. That's literally what the Greek word means. I didn't put that in your notes, but that's what it means. Now, in verse 2, he's going to use uh, the verb for, for ministry or verb form of diakonia, diakonio. 
Now, that means the same thing. You know, you know, you have you can say minister as a noun, or uh, you can say minister as a verb. Either one. So he, and that's what's happening here. And this time, when he uses the verb form of diakonia, he's talking about serving people with the word of God. Okay. So in other words, he's talking about the ministry word. Now, in verse four, he's going to make that really explicit. Okay. So. He goes on to say that, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven good men, seven men of good reputation. So now, the, basically, the apostles are telling the people how to solve the problem. Here's what you do. We're directing you to do this. You, you pick out seven good men, that is, men of good reputation. And, there, and the word he uses, the word that's translated re repute, is the word marturo. You probably hear the word martyr in that. And that's the sense, martyr means a witness. So these are people that have a good witness. Okay, They are men who are full of the spirit and of wisdom and whom we can appoint to the duty. Now hopefully you immediately recognize there are four basic qualifications that he's given them. Good reputation, full of the spirit, wisdom, and appointed. Now what you have there is C4. It may be a little subtle to you, but it is there. So, for example, a people of good reputation. Well, these are people that obviously do whatever they do very well because you build a great reputation by being excellent at what you do. So they're great witnesses. They're great testimony. So in the, in the calling aspect of C4, you have two aspects. You have the internal calling, the passion God puts in you, and you have the external call of the caller. So basically, the callers are looking at people that have that show great heart and passion to do things and calling them out. So there's the calling aspect. Full of the Spirit refers to now being full of the Holy Spirit. And somebody full of the Holy Spirit, truly full of the Holy Spirit, you can't necessarily use your experiences in your local churches as a guide here. But truly full of the Spirit will be a, a person of great character. And then someone who's full of wisdom has skill and ability to do something well. And then he says, they're appoint them. You see, basically, authority is being delegated by the apostles to the people to designate these seven people and to commission them to this work of food distribution. So you see the C4 principle now in play. Then the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now here, diakonia is used now specifically and clearly in reference to ministry of the word. Whereas before, ministry of food distribution. You can see the word diakonia is, does not mean what we normally think it means. We think ministry is the ministry, referring to church stuff. Okay, but the reality is the word diakonia means to execute the commands of, other, of another. It's not a religious term. It's a term of service. It's a term of being submitted to a master and serving the will of the master. And so you can be in the ministry and food distribution. You can be in ministry and teaching the word. Either one, it's ministry. And see, so this is why it's so important that we don't get into the Greek dualism and, and redefining ministry different from the way that Scripture uses the term. So moving on here, verse 5, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, 
and they chose. I just want to point out this word, ek legomai. Now, that's a very interesting word. Uh, you might be able to kind of hear the word election in that, because that would be an English word that would be derived from this. Ek is out of, and lego is to speak. Okay? We speak out. We choose. We speak out. And so when we elect, that's what we do. We choose by speaking out. We Our, our voices are heard through the ballots. And so that they basically, they came together, and then they made their choices, these seven men. And going down to verse 6, they set these men before the apostles. And you'll see I've got a, a graphic here on the screen that you might be able to kind of see. This is a an artist rendition of what this might have looked like. Obviously, it's you know we don't know for sure what it looked like. But you see them, they're bowing in front of the apostles, and they're getting ready to be ordained. Now think about this. They're being ordained for food distribution. You see, they prayed, that is the apostles, prayed over these men and laid their hands on them. That's what we call ordination. When I was ordained as an elder, I was I was selected. I did not choose myself. I was selected. I was invited. And I was, there was a, a service. And I was called to the front. I was asked to kneel down. And the apostle that overs our church and the other elders laid hands on me and installed me and prayed for me for that, that responsibility to serve as an elder. Well, likewise, that happened here for the responsibility to minister in food distribution. Now, so they, this, this whole area of food distribution now is getting set in order. And now look what happens. It says, and the word of God continued to increase. And that's the word for oxiano. I knew Peter would like that. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That word obedient there is hupakuo. And you probably hear the word akuo, acoustics in English. Acoustics is about sound. Hoop is to be under. So hupakuo is to be under the sound. And that means the implication is to be under the sound of someone with the purpose of obeying. That was the sense of hupakuo. That's the word obedient is also used in Colossians 3 of referencing to the children to be hupakuo to their parents. Be obedient. Be under the sound of your parents and be obedient. So that's what you have. You have priests, religious people who are many times the hardest people to ever work with, and they are becoming obedient to the faith. So let me just point out real quickly some key lessons here. Summarize this, if I may. This is a picture of kingdom work bringing order out of chaos. And the way you do that is you use get people in the right positions, doing what they were created by God to do. C4 is a great tool to help you do that. You recognize that part of this responsibility in commissioning is delegating authority. Commissioning is about delegating authority to people. You seven, seven men, I'm sure, saw the the disorder in the body, and they probably knew they could do something about it, but they had not been authorized to. They had not been commissioned to. They had to wait until they received that commissioning, and then they could put it in order. They, you have to work under delegated authority. Where has God delegated you authority? That's a clue to where you're commissioned to work. There is no self-commissioning. We can't 
figure this out ourselves. We can't just do what we want to do. We can't just say, well, I'm God's answer here. I can fix this. That is out of order. You have to be commissioned by those who have the authority to put that, to give you that authority to do that work. Ministry is to all listed vocations. We got to expunge this Greek dualism. I, I try as best I can not to even use the word ministry because it's so distorted today. And people immediately hear it through a Greek paradigm. And that is not the sense of Scripture. Scripture Ministry means to obey the commands of another. And the only other that we are under is Christ and those who represent him in our life. Like our parents represent Christ, our bosses, our church leaders. We should be under them. So we should be recognizing that we are in the service of Christ and we are to submit to all the authority that God has put into our life. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, whether we want to do it or not, whether they're saved or not, it doesn't matter. Authority is divinely ordained. Romans 13, all authority is divinely ordained, even saved and unsaved, and we are to submit. And then we have workplace commissioning here, which is almost something that's almost never done. I have rarely heard, and I have never seen any local church ordain men or women to their workplace callings. That just doesn't happen. At least if it does, if it happens, I don't see it. I'm sure that it has happened someplace. It happened here, but it doesn't seem to be a common practice in our paradigms of Christianity today. And notice this, alignment with God, with his will and his ways, with his principles, facilitates growth. You see what happened once they, they got the C4 people in the right place to deal with this problem, the word of God increased. It continued to increase. And even some religious people, which are the hardest people to work with, they became obedient to the faith. Wow. That's the power of C4, the power of alignment. It brings things in order. Bringing order out of chaos in the physical realm opens up to bringing order out of chaos in the spiritual realm. So this is the way that we can be used of God in powerful ways to advance his kingdom by doing simple things like food distribution. Now, that's, that just is kind of mind-blowing to most of us because we are not used to thinking that way. We're used to thinking about, you know, advancing the kingdom is all about spiritual stuff. No, advancing the kingdom happens when we line up with God. In whatever way we line up with God, that's what facilitates the kingdom of God growing and advancing. So may God give us a grace to learn to be equally yoked, to learn to use the C4 principle powerfully, and to learn to walk in the reality of Christ in us, the hope of glory. That is a powerful reality that will bring forth much fruit. May that be our portion in Jesus' name.